Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, also hit the like button on this video. And listening on any other platform, your five-star ratings and reviews are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. So let's dive right on in. Today's topic is satisficing. Satisficing is a mental model that I think it can be very well applied to your investment portfolio in the way you think about investments. This basically is a podcast discussing how this mental model of satisficing can tie into opportunity costs and how those opportunity costs make a difference in your decisions and the returns of your portfolio. So first, I'm going to define satisficing or the concept of satisfice. And satisfice, the definition that I get from Oxford languages via Google search, is to accept an available option as satisfactory. So basically, the concept of satisficing, the mental model satisficing, is all around this idea of finding satisfactory options, but not necessarily the best option, or not necessarily seeking optimal options. And I think this idea is very helpful because it's prevalent throughout everyone's life. Um, consumers make satisfactory choices all the time. They operate in a satisficing manner. So it can be helpful to investors to understand consumer decisions by understanding that people aren't seeking optimal choices, they're seeking satisfactory choices. Um, and it can also be useful for investors in the sense of how they look at and understand portfolio, portfolio optimization, and seeking out potential stock investments. So why do I think this mental model is something we need to discuss? Well. When I think about myself, just in general, I, te I tend to be an optimizer. I like to find the optimal thing. I want to have the best of something. I want to get into all the little details, work out all the best efficiencies, and find ways to improve the choices that I make, the products that I buy, I want the best of something for the cheapest price. And that's just generally how I tend to operate. I think this is one of the things that is very fitting with the career path I've chosen being an engineer. And as an engineer, you're taught to find ways to improve things. You're taught to find ways to optimize, to improve efficiencies, to make different decisions in that manner. And so being an optimizer is very beneficial in certain career paths, but I think being an optimizer in investing is a mistake. 
And I think the best way to illustrate that is to talk about this concept in more of a metaphorical manner. So instead of spending the whole podcast discussing how this applies to investing, I want to talk about consumer choices and consumers and how people think. There's this general idea that goes around in economic circles and economic thinking that people are rational and they make rational decisions. And so people are always going to choose the best product available to them or they're going to choose the cheapest product available to them or whatever utility they receive from a product is going to be optimized. And for a lot of reasons, I think that's false. You know, I've yet to meet someone that's rational. Um, We're emotional human beings and those emotions come into play in our decisions. And so we're able to be manipulated by our emotions into the decisions we make. Um, And this can both benefit us and it can harm us. Um, This is something that I am curious as to why it's in dispute in the mainstream, because we know that advertising works, um, which is basically the science of manipulating people into desiring certain things or wanting or needing certain things. And in a lot of ways, the the reason that advertising works is because people are not rational decision makers. And if we were rational decision makers, advertising would be much less effective, or at least certain forms of advertising would be much less effective. <laughs> so what does this mean? Well, if you think about it, consumers make choices every day. You're a consumer, you you purchase things for your house, for your family, just to survive. And any of these decisions, you have a choice. When you make that choice, you can choose many different things. You might choose to seek low price items. You might choose to seek high quality items. You might choose to seek interesting and diverse options. And in the same way, investors can do the same thing. They can seek out cheap stocks. They can seek out quality stocks. They can seek out a diverse portfolio or a concentrated portfolio. Um, But when you're a consumer, all those decisions that you're faced with in a day can be overwhelming. The average person will make thousands of decisions every day And the way that we find ways to deal with that is through different mental models. One of the most common ones is habit formation. So the habits help you make decisions quickly. You're not trying to decide, you know, which way, you know, when to brush your teeth in the morning or what time to wake up in the morning every single day. That's not a new decision. You have a habit and you tend to fall in those habits. It allows your brain to have a shortcut in making decisions. Well, satisfying is very similar to habits in that it's a way of improving your decision making with the idea that you have an opportunity cost and that opportunity cost is your time. You see, the the concern with being an optimizer is that you'll want to optimize everything. But if you optimize everything in life, then you're going to be unable to make a decision. Imagine being with a group of friends and you're trying to figure out where to eat. You want to go out for dinner, and you want to eat. You have five minutes before you need to make a decision, and you need to figure out where to go eat. 
So there's many different options here. You could go to many various restaurants as a choice of where to eat. You could go to someone's house and prepare a home-cooked meal. Maybe that requires um, going to the store to purchase food or maybe they already have food available. You can go to some sort of street vendor and just purchase food where you can walk and have some sort of picnic-style meal. And you need to weigh through all these decisions. But the problem is, is you have a limited period of time. Now, everyone's experience is likely to be different, but if you've been in some of the groups I've been in, it is sometimes quite difficult to decide where to go eat. And you'd think this is a simple decision. But if you have someone that's trying to optimize the decision, they're trying to, you're going to try and figure out, well, what is it that everyone likes to eat? What is everyone's preferred dietary habits? Are there certain things that are exclusionary? Do you have someone that's vegetarian in your group? And so you need to play, have a place that offers vegetarian meals. These are the sorts of decisions you need to handle. But optimizing here can be difficult because what does it mean to optimize? Well, now you have all sorts of information about these options. You might have Yelp where you can pull up food reviews and you can go through and read all, you know, a hundred food reviews from every option. And you might have dozens and dozens of choices for local restaurants. But if you were to read a hundred reviews from every restaurant, well, that's going to take a long time. And all of a sudden it'll be an hour later and you've not gone to eat anywhere. Versus the people who have a shortcut methodology of assessing this problem will have made a quicker decision and have fed themselves in the time it took you to make an optimal decision. How do they do this? What they're doing is they're using a heuristic called satisficing. And that is they're seeking a satisfactory solution. They're not seeking an optimal solution. And the satisfactory solution when it comes to making a food choice is just simply a place that's not necessarily the cheapest, but cheap enough, not necessarily the highest quality, but quality enough, and there's enough options such that everyone can be happy with at least one choice at the restaurant. It's satisfying is seeking basically a minimum acceptable solution. You know, in the idea of starting a business, you have minimum viable product. It's the minimum level of product that would allow the product to be sold on the marketplace that people would be willing to pay for. You don't necessarily need to perfect a product before coming to market. You need a satisfactory product to come to market. And then once you're able to sell it and you have customers, then you can optimize the product, improve it, and bring in more customers as the product gets better. So the idea is is that you need to understand when it's optimal to optimize something and when it's optimal to seek a satisfactory solution. You don't always want to optimize things and there's not always where you should simply seek a satisfactory solution. But I think in a lot of times, as investors, we can get stuck in a trap where we're seeking an optimal investing portfolio. We're seeking the best investing portfolio. And we're seeking to always make our portfolio better. But I think that's a trap. You see, the goal as an investor 
should not be to maximize your portfolio. Other things come into it. Now, depending upon what your background is and whether you're an individual investor or a portfolio professional portfolio manager, you're going to have different influences. If you're a professional portfolio manager, you might say, well, their purpose is to maximize the returns of their portfolio. But that's not always true. There's a whole reason, and we're not going to go too deep into it today, of why people talk about risk-adjusted returns. You see, in any short-term time period, an investor with the highest return likely took big risks that are not sustainable over the long term. So if you look at any, you know, one-year portfolio return and say, well, who had the highest return over the last 12 months? You might have people with portfolio returns above 30%, above 50%. Some people might have a portfolio return of 150%. And if you're seeking out which investor had the absolute highest rate of return over last year, it could be really high like those numbers. You could be talking triple-digit returns. But that same investor is not going to achieve triple-digit returns every year that they invest. In fact, in order to receive returns like that, the person is often taking investment risks that you would not want to take as a long-term investor, that you would not want to replicate over 30 years. There's probably some sort of short-term bet that they had a payoff on. These are basically the sorts of returns related to like option type returns where you take a short, a small amount of risk with potential for massive upside. Well, there's times where if you do that, you're going to win. And if you win like that on the very first time you try it, your portfolio returns could look amazing, but it can ignore all the other losses that are incumbent upon such a strategy. Or it can ignore the possibility of blow-up risk. You know, if you're putting, you know, you go to a casino and once a day, every day for a year, you put all your money on red at the roulette table, or basically you double your money or lose everything. Well, if you did that every day for a year, it's possible that at the end of the year, you have a gigantic amount of money and that you never lost. But if you were to continue this strategy, for the rest of your life, there will come a day where you lose everything and your prior portfolio returns don't matter. What this means is that high returns in any short-term time period are not the goal. You don't want the highest return in a short-term time period, but instead we're talking about long-term returns. Well, okay, everyone knows that. You're supposed to seek a long-term investing strategy. You're supposed to seek long-term investment returns. But again, over the long term, you're not trying to maximize the returns of your portfolio. You're trying to seek satisfactory returns of your portfolio. Now, why is that? Now, as an individual investor, this is because there are certain components to your investing life that are not based upon money. As an individual investor, you have to worry about what allows you to sleep at night. What is too much risk for you to sleep soundly at night? You need to have the type of portfolio that's easy for you to understand and easy for you to be comfortable with when volatility gets in the way. 
or when business performance performs in an adverse manner compared to your predictions. This is something you need to be aware of. In addition, as an individual investor, when you're constructing your portfolio, that portfolio should be tailored to help you achieve your financial goals with minimal risk. The goal isn't to maximize your portfolio, but to maximize the chances of achieving your financial goals. And that's done by seeking satisfactory investments that allow you to achieve your financial goals with minimal risk. But if you're a portfolio manager, some investors that invest with you might believe that they are seeking you to reach achieve a maximum rate of return. They want you to spend every day trying to optimize the portfolio and try to get a little bit better return than they thought you than you might have had in the day before. Other LP limited partners that might invest with you if you're a professional investor might simply be seeking protection of their principal with reasonable growth rates. Even still, others want you to be taking massive risks so they can get a massive payoff, and they don't care about losses. The problem for a professional investors is they have many different types of investors that invest with them, and sometimes it's hard to weigh these different interests as the general partner of an investment portfolio. So again, what do you need to do? Well, as a professional investor, I would still assert that your goal isn't to maximize your portfolio, or at least your goal shouldn't be to appear to maximize your portfolio. Your goal should be to improve your portfolio when you can. But sometimes simply seeking to maximize the returns of your portfolio can actually lower the returns of your portfolio. One instance where this is true is if you have a lot of portfolio turnover. Portfolio turnover can be very beneficial. If you're buying and selling stocks quickly, then assuming those decisions are good decisions, you're going to rapidly improve the performance of your portfolio. This is true even if you take taxes into account because the portfolio then turnover would assume to then be good. You're always improving the quality of your stocks. You're improving the value of your stocks. You're improving the growth of your stocks. And so the more times you can make those changes, the better the returns of your portfolio. Yet, the problem is, again, taxes do come into account. And sometimes that rapid turnover can lead to higher taxes that exceed the benefit that you're gaining from your quote-unquote optimal portfolio. But other times, the real problem is, is that you're not making a good decision when you turn over the portfolio. You're not actually improving the portfolio. You might think you are, but you're not actually doing so. And I think this is one of the issues that can be related to my podcast that I did previously. I think it was episode 85 about being roughly right or precisely wrong. One of the problems that people will find if they're trying to turn over their portfolio quickly or optimize their portfolio is that the differences between their investments are too small to justify a portfolio change. And that's because the distinctions that they're using in their assumptions 
aren't large enough to make a big enough difference between the potential error range. What do I mean here? Well, let's say I have a portfolio that I believe is set up to return 10% per year. But I have a new stock idea. And that stock idea, I think, is probably going to return 11% per year or 12% per year, maybe 11% per year. So I now have a stock idea that's expected to turn 11% per year. But the other stocks in my portfolio are 10% per year. Now, on the surface, this sounds like a good idea. I can trade one of, I can sell down some of my shares and use those shares to buy a stock that has a greater potential rate of return. But what it fails to take into account is the error range. When I say that I have a 10% rate of return expectation for a stock, maybe that really means that the expected rate of return is somewhere between 5% and 15%. Likewise, when I say the return expectation is 11%, well, maybe the return expectation is 6% to 16%. So it's possible that my 11% returning stock is actually going to return 6%, while the 10% returning stock is actually going to return 14%, such that keeping my original allocation would have been a better decision than turning it over to the new stock. Well, how do you solve that problem? Well, you can make a decision to not turn over stocks in your portfolio unless there's a significant difference between the current expected rate of return and the new expected rate of return. And here I think a nice minimum threshold is 5%. So basically, if you have stocks in your portfolio expected to return 10% a year, you don't necessarily need to change them out unless you find ideas that are now going to return 15% or more. Because now you're far enough away from the 10% that that difference is likely to be more information than noise. You want to avoid making changes where you're not sure that there's a significant difference. So it can't just be that there is a difference. You're looking for significant differences. The other piece here that I think comes into this when we think about satisficing and why you should avoid attempting to maximize your portfolio returns is this can lead you down the path of thinking about relative performance instead of absolute performance. One of the traps um, of using Twitter or talking to other investors is you're likely to hear about people's investment performance. And that investment performance may be better or worse than you, but often the problem is when people are performing better than you. You're going to see relative performance that you want to achieve. And this can cause you to make bad investment decisions. You might change your strategy too quickly. You might invest outside of your circle of competence. Any of these areas can lead to bad decisions. But the easiest and hardest one to deal with, or the the most obvious one and the hardest to deal with, is trying to deal with good absolute performance, but bad relative performance to something well-known and major like the S&P 500 Index Fund. You see, I I gained, um, I received a question from Twitter when I was thinking about making this podcast from uh, Wobble. And Wobble mentions that he thinks it'd be interesting to discuss the implications for whether you should focus on absolute or relative returns. And this is a really good point because when you think about 
the problem here. I said your goal as an investor is to find satisfactory investments that allow you to achieve your financial goals with minimum risk. Well, this is going to be different for everyone. Some people need a 4% rate of return to achieve their financial goals. Some people need a 12% annual return to achieve their financial goals. Some people need a 20% annual return to achieve their financial goals. These are absolute rates of returns. The return of the S&P 500 has nothing to do with the financial goals that you have in your life. And so, the return of the S&P 500 has nothing to do with how you should structure your portfolio because your financial goals are driven by your personal life interests, your personal income, your personal savings rate. All of these things come into your financial goals and the things you want for your life and your family. If you base your financial goals on an unpredictable relative return from some index, then you have a problem. Because what happens when the index fails to achieve the absolute rate of return holder that you need for your goals? You might say it's like, okay, well, my goal is 4% a year. The S&P 500 has historically done 10%. So that should be a good enough investment. Well, maybe it is. But just because the S&P 500 has done 10% in the past doesn't mean it's necessarily going to do 10% in the future. You need to understand why it's achieved it in the past if you want to understand if it will in the future. Likewise, the S&P 500 is much less likely to, of course, be helpful for you if you need a return of 15% a year. Now, you understand why the S&P 500 might not return 15% a year. But the point is, let's say your goal is 4% a year. And you you look at it and say, okay, well, the S&P 500 is achieving 10% a year. So ideally, I can invest in the S&P 500 and achieve my financial goals. So you say, look at that and say, okay, I'm going to put my money in the S&P 500. Well, would you be satisfied if the S&P 500 only achieved a 2% rate of return for your holding period? Now, you haven't done worse than the index. You matched the index, but you only have a 2% rate of return, and you've failed to meet your financial goals. Instead, let's look at a different scenario where the S&P 500 achieved a 12% annual return. You would be happy because the S&P 500 met your goals. But let's talk about a different situation. The S&P 500 still achieves a 12% annual return, but you chose to invest your own money. And you achieved a 6% rate of return. Well, if your goal was 4% and you achieved a 6% rate of return, but you did worse than the index, is that failure or success? Now, I would say that's success because you met your absolute financial goals. You met the satisfactory option, but you didn't necessarily maximize your returns over that period. But it's fine because you still achieved your financial goals. Maybe this example isn't very good if we're talking a low number like 4%. But what if you need 10% annual returns? What if you need 10% annual returns and you build a portfolio and achieve a 12% annual return? 
Again, that's success because you met your personal financial goals. And that's true whether the S&P 500 earned an 8% annual return, a 10% annual return, or a 15% annual return. It does not matter if you underperform the S&P 500 if you achieve your personal financial goals. Because that's all that matters. Investing is not some abstract concept or some abstract practice where you play with numbers on a computer. Or you play with numbers and call your broker and you make trades. Investing is real. These are real businesses that you're putting your money into. And these are real returns. But most importantly, they are real financial goals. If you want to retire, that's a real financial goal. If you want to pay for your children's college, that is a real financial goal. And achieving that is important to you in your life if that's what you've chosen for it to be. The numbers that you put on a screen for your investments are simply a means to an end to help you achieve your goals. And you should only think about them in those terms because that's what they're there for. It can be helpful to think as investing as a game if that allows you to make better decisions. But if you think of it as a game and it causes you to make worse decisions because you're quote-unquote losing or you're not doing as well as an index, that's a problem. Because what you need to focus on is what are your goals and how are you going to achieve them? Investing is simply a tool to allow you to achieve those goals. So that's the concept of satisficing, where you accept an available option as satisfactory. I encourage you to try and think about your investment portfolio in that manner. Try and identify companies and stocks that are satisfactory investments. They're sufficiently cheap. They're sufficiently high quality. And they're sufficiently good and predictable to help you achieve the rates of return you're trying to target. You don't need to own the highest quality companies. You don't need to own the cheapest companies. You don't need to own the absolute best investments out there. What you need to do is you need to seek out investments that meet a hurdle rate that allow you to achieve your goals. And it's okay, once you've identified one of those investments, to make an investment purchase. You don't need to research a thousand different companies before you buy one, as long as you've found companies that meet your goals. You're not looking for the best. You're just looking to build a portfolio where each stock individually is expected to meet your goal, and cumulatively as a portfolio you can achieve your goals. So I hope that's been helpful to you. I hope this podcast can help you think about a way of achieving your portfolio goals with maybe you haven't thought about it that way before. If not, you know, I encourage you to think about how this may help you in other areas of your life, making quicker decisions, that sort of thing. So thank you for listening to this podcast. There's full show notes for the episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at DIYinvesting.org slash episode 88. 
Finally, remember this is a listener-supported podcast. If you've gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at diyinvesting.org slash p-a-t-r-o-n. Your financial support is what allows me to continue creating this free investment content without any advertisements. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Hinegar, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.